Well, we're in a series of Bible studies that we've entitled, Scary Families. Taking the fright out of family life. You know, people, they tend to lose their inhibitions around family. Sometimes they assume liberties that they'd never try with outsiders around family. Family members are prone to take each other for granted. And all of this combines to produce some really weird stuff that goes on in families. That's why I say family life can get very, very scary. Now each week in our series, I'm going to show you a few photos of some really spooky families. I'm doing this because most of you have no idea what a scary family is like. I mean, you live in such a healthy and loving and normal and just peaceful family. I understand that. So I'm using these snapshots to sort of set the mood for us. Here, here's one. Here's the kids with Santa. Here's a nice family. But how often do you see a Santa with a shiner? Poor Santa's been cold cocked, and you just wonder, did the kids do it? I mean, to me, this is really scary. The kids could have given him that black, black eye. That's a scary family. Now, here's another nice family portrait. I mean, the girls are in dresses. Uh, Sonny's wearing the tie. I mean, Dad's in his best Bermuda shorts. That's kind of strange. But I mean, like, what's up with Junior here? While everybody's saying cheese, he's choking Mom. I mean, that's really scary. Speaking of mom, you really got to feel sorry for this mom. There she is. I mean, when you pay for one of these nice professional portraits to be done, you want everybody in the family looking nice. I'm sure her son wearing black lipstick was not what she had in mind. I mean, the goth kid there, I mean, he's really scary. Finally, here's another family portrait. Here we go. <laughs> I mean, that's a nice family portrait, but what in the world are these parents thinking, man? I mean, why would you dress up your seven kids in prison garb? I mean, what kind of aspirations do you have for your family? I mean, our kids, the chain gang? To me, that's just scary. Well, this all leads us to this morning's episode of Scary Families. We've entitled the message, When the Patients Take Over the Asylum. When the patients take over the asylum. You see, when a leadership vacuum occurs in a family, its members go nuts. There's no guidance. I mean, people tend to act selfishly. They harm rather than help each other. Now, I want to start out by reading this last verse in the book of Judges. It speaks of Israel at a time of great peril, but it also describes the lack of leadership in families today. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Here was the cultural climate that led to Israel's cry for a monarchy. There was no consensus on what was right and wrong. There was no moral imperative that made any sense out of life. Everyone just did as they pleased. Self-gratification ruled the day. Israel was desperate for spiritual leadership. And you see, families today are desperate for the same thing. 
When our homes lack leadership and moral authority, it's Katie bar the door. Families get scary. Maybe you've seen the AMC show, The Walking Dead. It's about a post-apocalyptic world where social structures have crumbled. Anarchy rules in the streets. The world is overrun with zombies. I mean, former humans who've been traumatized, they're called walkers in the show. These walking wounded, they roam around, preying on anything alive. The few surviving human beings, they live in fear of these shuffling zombie hordes who are out to get them. Now I'm sure it's probably not the intention of the writers of the show, of this show, Walking Wounded. But in reality, this show, it's a cultural metaphor of the horror that exists in today's world. For we too live in a time when the foundations of truth and morality have been torn down. I mean, moral anarchy reigns. And it has produced a crippled generation. A generation of kids that lack a conscience and a moral compass. It's sad, but people today are like spiritual zombies. They're just sort of roaming around, preying on other folks, led only by their appetites. It's a tragedy. And sadly, all our vain efforts aren't fixing the problem. Hey guys, did you know condom distribution and clean needles and anti-bullying campaigns aren't teaching morality to our kids? Did you know that? Hey, this begins at home. What goes on in the streets is a direct reflection of what's happening in our homes. Recently, the mayor of Philadelphia, Michael Nutter, he went off on this 25-minute rant against his city's parents. And I quote, Parents, get your act together right now, or you're going to find yourself spending quality time with your kids in jail. If you're not providing moral instruction to your children, you're just a human ATM. Hey, it's dads and moms that need to be teaching their kids truth and modeling for them morality. Or else their kids are going to grow up confused and undisciplined and self-absorbed. Oh, for a society of thinking, loving, principled folks, not selfish walkers on the prowl looking for more to consume. At the turn of the 20th century, Thomas Keeler, he writes this, I care little for the government that presides at Washington in comparison with the government that rules millions of American homes. The home rules the nation. And indeed it does. The home does rule the nation. But when there's no one at home holding the reins, when dad has vacated his role and responsibility, or when mom gets distracted with other concerns, kids are left to grow up on their own. And that's when families get scary. Well, we just read of the terrible conditions that existed in Israel during the days of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, there was a prominent man who lived at the time whose name was Eli. Eli lived up in the mountains above Shiloh. He lived at the tabernacle. And as the Hebrew high priest, Eli offered up prayers and praise and sacrifices to God. He even entered the Holy of Holies to intercede for the people. Eli was the nation of Israel's spiritual leader. But for some reason, Eli failed to lead in his own family. He was big man at the tabernacle, but he was a big flop at home. 
In some ways, Eli's influence touched an entire nation, but somehow it missed his own boys. Was he too busy with church work to tend to his own sons? We're not sure. Whatever tripped up Eli, we're not quite sure. But one thing's for sure, his sons made a mockery of the things of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22 tells us, Now Eli was very old, and when he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, my oh my, this was a sizzling sex scandal. I mean, imagine the headlines in the Jerusalem Post. Eli's sons, priests themselves, were guilty of blatant rebellion. They were hosting orgies on the steps of God's house. This news rocked the priesthood. It heaped shame on the nation. It cast a cloud over the head of Eli's ministry. When Eli first received news of his sons' immorality, he reprimanded them. But it was little more than a slap on the wrist. It wasn't the action God required. When God pronounces judgment on Eli, he speaks sternly. He says this, I have told Eli that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Notice Eli's sin. He failed to restrain his sons. And as a result, our father God held this father at least partly responsible for the sins of his children. Notice the job of every father, first and foremost, is to restrain his children. A dad's duty is to curb their rebellion, tame their temper, diffuse their defiance. Yes, every dad needs to have a nurturing side. He needs to love his kids. He needs to show them compassion and kindness. Not just mom. Dad needs to do that too. But a dad's primary obligation is to keep his kids in check. You see, a dad is the captain of the ship. And it's his main responsibility to put down mutinies when they occur. God puts dad in charge of the training and leadership in the family. Hebrews 12 reminds us that a father who truly loves his son will discipline him. You see, the dad who never restrains his kids, who always gives in to whatever they want, despite what he says, really doesn't love his children. One night I had retired to the living room after putting my kids to bed. My three-year-old, he had gone down squirming. I knew he didn't want to go to bed, but it was time. And when it's time to go to bed, you go to bed. Well, I had just gotten comfortable in the lazy boy when all of a sudden this little boy, he comes trotting through the living room like he owns the place. He's going to see his mom. I said, son, what in the world are you doing out of bed? I'll never forget it. He turns to me with this defiant look on his face and he says, Dad, mind your own business. <laughs> well, well, well. I proceeded to show that boy exactly what my business was. I spanked his little rump and I put him to bed for the final time that night. You see, a dad's business, his God-ordained job, is to restrain and discipline his kids. And at three years old, it's just beginning. 
Don't ever forget, God brought judgment on the house of Eli because he failed to restrain his sons. But honestly, that doesn't satisfy my curiosity. For I wonder, why did Eli drop the ball? I mean, he was a priest. He apparently was sensitive to the things of God. He lived his life for the Lord. What caused him to fail in his own family? How did a priestly family become a scary family? I want to spend the rest of my time this morning painting three more pictures that I think help to explain why a dad, or why a parent for that matter, vacates the leadership in their home. And when they do, the zombies or the walkers or the kiddos or the relatives or whatever you call them, they take over. The patients end up running the asylum. Well, the first portrait I want to present is that of King David. And I'm actually reluctant to cast any negative light on David. He was such a wonderful man. There was so much commendable about this man, David. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. You remember, David was a warrior. He feared God, feared only God, and fought his battles. Under David's reign, the twelve tribes of Israel were consolidated. He even expanded the nation's borders. Not only was David a warrior, he was also a worshiper. He knew God's heart like few others. In fact, David wrote nearly half the Psalms. History knows David as a dude. But at home, David was a dud. For like Eli, he inspired a nation but he failed his own family. You see, the David who ran off to battle to confront Goliath, he stood by while his own household veered off the rails. As a dead, here was David's problem. He was paralyzed by guilt. You recall that fateful night. It was springtime when normally kings go off to battle. But David stayed home. He wanted to take it easy. Man, enjoy a little R&R. My word, if anybody deserved a vacation, it was Dave. But idleness is the devil's workshop. And that night after dinner, he strolled out onto the balcony. And as he surveyed his city, he caught glimpse in the moonlight of a naked woman. Her shadowy silhouette haunted him. He had to meet this woman. He wanted to behold her beauty up close. His rendezvous with Bathsheba led to adultery, an illegitimate pregnancy, lies, the murder of her husband, and an ugly cover-up that went on for more than a year. It was awful. And the guilt devastated David. He writes of his experience afterwards in Psalm 32. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality turned into the drought of summer. When you track David's life, you can make a case that he never recovered from his own personal failure. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we, we recount David's adultery and how God brought it to the light of day in a very public way. When the baby died shortly thereafter, after the birth, David rightly took it as a good judgment from God. Now the blood of his own son was on his hands, and it caused the king great grief. Though King David rose up and went back to work, so to speak, it seems he never overcame the shame of his sin. Guilt paralyzed his parenting. You see, David never regained the high ground in his own family, the moral high ground. He felt unworthy. 
And because of it, he forfeited his authority. And he never found a way to rise back up and take it back. It's no accident that in the very next chapter, 2 Samuel 13, we see David's family unraveling. The king has a son named Amnon who falls in love with his half-sister Tamar. This Amnon, he's a weasel, man. He's a snake in the grass. He feigns a sickness and he lures Tamar into his bedroom. The spoiled brat refuses to take no for an answer. He says he loves the princess. But when she refuses his advances, he rapes Tamar. 2 Samuel 13 verses 14 and 15 recount the sordid event. It says, being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Is it any surprise? Amnon uses her up and then spits her out. And here's the blight on David's record. He did nothing. The scripture says, When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, but he did nothing. The king of Israel, more importantly, the head of his household, refused to step in and step up and address this injustice. He refused to discipline his own family. 2 Samuel 13 verse 23 tells us, And it came to pass after two full years. Imagine this. Two years go by. For two years David overlooks his son's sin. He ignores the brutality and its impact on Tamar. She had been violated. Did her dad even care? Well, her older brother Absalom, he cared. So much so that he lured Amnon into his kitchen where he had the rapist stabbed in the gut with a knife and killed him. And rather than get mad at himself for causing this scenario, for forcing the elder brother to take matters into his own hands, David took out his anger on Absalom. The guy who tried to fix the injustice. It caused a breach in David's own family that never healed. In fact, David's conflict with Absalom later erupts into a full-scale rebellion. Absalom and his friends no longer trust or respect David because of his lack of leadership. And they launch a coup d'etat to drive David off the throne. In the end, David's son Absalom dies. And though David's rule is restored, his heart is broken forever. You see, here's what I believe. Guilt is a terrible obstacle for a parent to overcome. You see, a parent with a checkered past has a hard time coming down on their kids when they make the same mistakes. They become paralyzed. Promiscuous kids later become permissive parents. I hear parents say, well, who am I to steer my kids away from drugs when I smoke pot? Or worse, how can I come down on my daughter for dressing a little provocatively when she was born three months before her dad and I got married? I mean, I can't get too upset over my son's poor grades when I dropped out of school my junior year. Who am I to tell my kid what to do after the life that I've lived? Well, I'll tell you who you are. You are your kid's parent. And it's time that you stopped sulking and stood up in the grace of God and started acting like the parent that you are. You see, just because 
you were a rebellious kid doesn't mean you have to be a reluctant parent. You know, I've always told my kids that if they didn't turn out better than me, I'd be severely disappointed. And that's true. That's not just a cop-out. I've been actively involved in their life and I've tried to help them avoid the mistakes that I've made. My problems growing up have been a motivation for my parenting, not a paralysis. My pain is my kid's gain. Sadly, some of us, we misunderstand God's forgiveness. You know, we're like the disobedient dog that jumped the leash and failed to obey his master. We got spanked and now we're chewing on a biscuit back in line, wagging our little tail, you know, minding our manners again. But that's not forgiveness. That's just behavior modification. Forgiveness is so much more. God's forgiveness, it deep cleans us. It changes who we are in the deepest parts. It cleans up our mind and it restores our conscience. And it clothes us in a new identity. When I give my life to Jesus, I possess a brand new heart and I'm given a brand new start. And you know, all that means, what all that means is that I can now begin to parent guilt-free. I don't have to be paralyzed or crippled by my past sins. You see, Jesus retakes the high ground and He gives it to those who trust in Him. Certainly, I'm going to raise my kids with an appreciation and an understanding of God's grace, the grace I've been shown. But understand, the Bible calls me the righteousness of Christ. If I believe in the power of God, then I believe His power is sufficient to keep and enable my kids. You see, here's the miracle of the gospel. People who were slaves to sin have now become ambassadors for Christ. And the first place we begin to live it out is in our own families. Here's lesson number one. Never let guilt from your past paralyze your present. But there's another story I need to tell you. Genesis 34 exposes another scary family. The family of Jacob. Imagine 12 brothers and one sister. Can you imagine that? Twelve boys and one girl? I recall when Mac was born, my daughter Natalie, she cried profusely. She so much wanted a little sister. That's until I set her down and I assured her. I said, honey, if we have another little girl, then you won't be daddy's only princess anymore. You'll have to share his special affections. Favored child status will no longer just be yours. And after thinking it through, Natalie dried her tears and I've never heard about it since. She realized she had a pretty good gig. Well, that was the case with Dinah, Jacob's daughter. She was the twinkle in her daddy's eye. She had 12 bad brothers who had her back. And wow, were they mad when they heard about a guy who'd done the dirty with their beloved sister. You see, one, one day, Donna, she had gone out to hang out with the teenage girls at the local mall. And you know what happens when teenage girls gather together? There ends up being some teenage boys. One of the Gentile neighbors saw Dinah and he lusted after her. He and Dinah wound up on the back seat of the camel where he stole Jake's daughter's purity from her. This boy's name was Shechem. And this Shechem, he rushes home to his daddy. And he asks to arrange a marriage between he and Dinah. 
Oh, Daddy, I won't find a gal as fine as Dinah. Well, apparently Shechem never got around to speaking to Jacob. The brothers intervened. And they could have cared less about nuptials. They only had one thing on their mind, revenge. But they played it coy. The boys tell Shechem what they want to hear. Oh, hey, we'll all just intermarry. There's only one problem, Shechem. Your kin aren't circumcised. You guys need to be circumcised first. Have all the men get circumcised, and then multiple weddings will be happening all over the place. And Shechem's crew agreed. Now, I hate to torment the males here this morning, but men, imagine for a moment you, a grown man, undergoing the unanesthetized procedure an unanesthetized surgical procedure on your privy member. Imagine you going through that. Just the thought of such thing is painful, in my opinion. As a matter of fact, I have a friend of mine. He endured this as an adult. got circumcised. I'll never forget his story. It, it, was, it was curdled my blood. It was awful. I was tempted to sort of put him over in the shadows this morning, kind of gargle his voice to protect his identity. And just let him tell you the horror story. Talk about a scary family moment. I decided not to put us all through such a brutal ordeal. Just take my word for it. These guys, after being circumcised, they were incapacitated. And that is exactly what Jacob's boys wanted. No one's going to get away with disrespecting our sister. And so on the third day, post-surgery, they swoop in with drawn swords. And they slaughter Shechem and his buddies. It was brutal, it was bloodthirsty, it was wrong. There had to be a better way, a less violent way to solve this problem. But evidently, there wasn't a dad around to help the boys think through a more godly reaction. Again, a lack of leadership creates a scary family. And it amazes me the first words out of Jacob's mouth when he hears about the bloodlust of his own sons. I mean, blood is still dripping from the sword. Genesis 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Here's his first thought. What will the neighbors say? Not, what have you done? Not, you know, couldn't you have done something differently? Not, what is God going to say about what you've done? No, the first thing he said, what will the neighbors think? What kind of a leader is that? All Jacob cares about are other people's opinions. His status in the community, what will happen to him? More specifically, he was concerned about keeping the peace instead of doing what was right. At least his sons, though horribly misled, at least they sought to correct an injustice. All dad wanted was to avoid making waves. Here's another reason why parents, particularly dads, back away from leadership. Leadership in their homes. Keeping the peace is seen as more important than pursuing what's right. When you have that attitude at work, 
it can produce a scary family. It's peace at any price. Even peace over principle. Oh, whatever you do, just don't rock the boat. This is why a husband cowers to a strong-willed wife. You know, he laughs and he sloughs it off. Well, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. But sometimes mama isn't happy because there's not a man in her life who loves her enough to help her check her emotions and make wise decisions. Few wives like it when their husband disagrees with them, but they need his godly wisdom. You see, a husband isn't loving a wife when he always caves in to unreasonable demands just to avoid a conflict. This is also true of a wife who puts up with an abusive husband. Well, he pays the bills and he puts food on the table. In return, everybody else in the family tiptoes around him on pins and needles just to keep him from going ballistic. Hey, this kind, these kinds of dynamics make for unhealthy families. They create scary families. Hey, peace at any price is not a virtue. Just because a man pays the rent and fixes a few leaky faucets doesn't give him the right to run roughshod over the family's feelings and act like a jerk. It's not love that puts up with an abusive spouse. It's not love that just caves in to the unrelenting demands of a foolish woman. When Jacob gives the brothers his don't make waves rationale, his boys, they fire back at him in verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? In other words, somebody needs to be held accountable. Whether the neighbors agree or not. What about righteousness here? You see, at times the boat needs to be rocked. Real love will call people to task. Remember, Jesus brings grace and truth. Whereas peace over principle creates a scary family. Well, here's a third and final portrait of a man who failed to lead his family. Who let the patience take over the asylum. 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 25 tells us, There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Ahab was a man who did evil because he let his wife stir him up. He followed her lead rather than vice versa. Rather than set a godly pace for his family, Ahab allowed his wicked wife to drag him to hell with her. Now let me just say this as gently as I can. Ahab was a spineless wimp. And his cowardice emboldened a dangerous woman. You see, King Ahab, he had married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. The name itself has become infamous. I mean, when you have a daughter, I mean, that's just one name you don't even have to consider. That's the first name you strike off your list. Nobody in their right mind is going to name their daughter Jezebel. It just reeks of evil. Jezebel. Well, when the missus is a Jezebel, you know it's going to be a scary family. This woman single-handedly plunged Israel into the dark abyss of idolatry. She imported the Phoenician idol Baal and the 850 priests that propagated his blasphemy. Scripture says that Jezebel fed these ambassadors of idolatry from food with food from the king's own table. 
Imagine how God felt about that. The state of Israel was subsidizing idolatry and the king was just rolling over and letting it happen. Ahab was king of Israel and king over his own castle, but he did nothing to stand up to Jezebel and her evil. He vacated leadership. He let his wife run over him. And a truly mad, crazy woman took over the reins of his family and his nation. There's a frightening story in 1 Kings chapter 21. Ahab finds a fruitful vineyard near his palace, and he offers to buy it from its owner. But Naboth tells him it's not for sale. And so this brave, wonderful King Ahab, he comes home and he whines like a baby. He comes home, he just lies down on his bed, and he pouts like a little crybaby. He cries. And Jezebel sees it, and, and oh, she has such respect for her husband. No, she doesn't. It turns her stomach. She can't believe she's married to such a wimp. And her husband's wickedness emboldens more evil. She decides she's going to get this thing for him. And so she concocts a scheme to frame Naboth. She accuses him of blasphemy and has him stoned to death. The plan goes off without a hitch. And before long, she's gifting the property deed to her hubby. And rather than investigate what his wife has done, Rather than look into her actions, knowing her heart, Ahab just plays dumb. He's got his vineyard now. Why would he want to confront a Jezebel? But he should have. Ahab's complacency provoked God's wrath. God didn't ignore the evil that had been done. The prophet Elijah came and called out Ahab. He tells the king that where the dog's lips licked up Naboth's blood, Naboth's blood, they will soon feast on his blood. God plans to cut off the house of Ahab and turn Jezebel into puppy chow. How's that for a scary end to a royal family? But this is what happens when a family, this is what happens to a family when leadership is vacated through cowardice. Bloodshed results. Maybe not literally, but trust me, spiritual violence occurs. You see, when there's a void of leadership, when two partners have fought for leadership, they don't just end up parting ways. They don't just agree to disagree. No, in a power struggle, people get hurt. Families end up torn apart. Kids stop speaking to parents. Parents can't stand their kids. Husbands and wives are at war with each other. Families become scary families when fathers and mothers succumb to fear and fail to restrain their kids. You need to understand something about parenting. You need to know that your children are little Jezebels. They're little Phoenicians. Just because you bring them home to your home from the hospital doesn't mean they're going to embrace your values and worship your God. To the contrary, when you bring a baby home from the hospital, it's like Ahab bringing Jezebel from Phoenicia down to Samaria. Your kids are idolaters. They worship themselves from day one. Here's the Jezebel attitude, and every kid has it. They're born with it. You want a vineyard, so you just take it. You take whatever you want. 
That's the natural attitude of a child. That's the Jezebel attitude. That's why your kids have to be taught to work hard and save their money and respect the rights of other people and obey the law and pay for property when and if it becomes available. You don't just give them what they want. It's been said, give a kid, excuse me, give a kid everything and he or she won't appreciate anything. This is the Jezebel attitude. And you see, if you're afraid to stand up to your kids, to insist on correct belief and right behavior, they will run wild. The patients will take over the asylum. That's what will happen. You see, a parent's weakness doesn't garner a kid's respect. It does just the opposite. Like Jezebel, it emboldens their evil. Give in once... And see how often your child will try to exploit that soft spot and get you to cave in again. Just try it. I mean, that was Ahab's approach to Jezebel. Oh, just do as you please, honey. He asked no questions. He buried his head in the sand. You take that approach with your children and your family will turn into a real-life horror movie. This is why every family needs brave leadership. When a wimp is at the helm, Jezebel takes advantage. Don't you dare take the approach. Well, we're not going to try and impose our beliefs on our kids. We don't want to shove anything down their throat. We don't want to try to influence them in these matters. We'll just let them choose their own beliefs when they get older. That, my friend, is the height of madness. You are playing right into the devil's hands. Don't you understand? Your kids aren't a black, blank slate. I mean, they come with a sin nature. They have a propensity within them towards selfishness and evil. And they have to be restrained. And neither do they live in a neutral environment. Trust me, the world, the flesh, the devil are working overtime to influence our kids. Every day, a tidal wave of temptation targets your kids. If the parents don't rise up and protect and influence their kids, who in the world will? Certainly our kids. One day our kids will have to choose for themselves. Indeed they will. We won't be there to make that decision for them. We wouldn't want to if we could. It is their decision. But in the meantime, parents need the courage and the resolve and the determination to steer their kids in the right direction even when they're not anxious to follow. I've heard it said, Kids will forgive you for your mistakes, but your cowardice will send them elsewhere for strength. We all gravitate towards strong leadership. Every human is looking for something to believe in that's worth standing for and fighting for and living for. Actually, there is a new medical disorder that's been identified. It's been labeled WPS, Wimpy Parent Syndrome. You know, it starts when you let the kids suck on the pacifier for too long because you're too lazy to do something about it. It grows when you buy the kid the toy just to stop his temper tantrum or when you reward the guilt trip he's laid on you with a nicer car. It's called wimpy parent syndrome. Hey, if you want a child to learn patience, and to develop self-control and understand the benefits of delayed gratification, then the parent has to be strong enough to tolerate the kid's unhappiness at times. Let me say that again. 
The parent has to be strong enough to tolerate the kid's unhappiness at times. This is why it takes guts and nerve and some gritty faith and an unswerving devotion to what's wise and right to be a good parent. Hey, your daughter is not going to like it when you make her take that swimsuit back because it's too skimpy. She's not going to love you for that. She's not going to put her arms around you and hug you, Daddy, for that. Your son isn't going to nominate you for dead of the year when you take away his car keys after he gets a speeding ticket. Parents need to remember, we're not running for re-election. Your kids have plenty of friends who will tell them what they want to hear, but you're their parent, and your job is to tell your kids what they need to hear. One thing is certain, when parents no longer discipline their kids, and when husbands no longer lead their wives, the patients take over the asylum. And that's what creates a scary family. Don't you become paralyzed by guilt and vacate the leadership in your family. As Christians, we regain the moral high ground when we see ourselves in Christ. And don't pursue a peace at any price. Family life gets spooky when everybody just gets afraid to rock in the boat and nobody's willing to hold each other accountable. And don't cower away from a confrontation. Spouses need to stand up for what's right. Parents need to stand up to their kids. Tough love is a necessary family skill. This morning, if your family has been slipping away, I want to pray for you. And I, ask, I want to ask God to help you get it back. I pray that He'll wash away your guilt this morning. That you can stand in the power of Christ and regain the high ground in your family. I want to pray that He'll replace your fears with new faith. And I want to pray that He'll lift you up out of your weakness in His strength and help you be the parent that your kids need and that you want to be. Rather than scary families, God wants us all to be faithful families.